Good morning. I'm one of the other Jonathans at City Church, if you don't already know me, Jonathan Bassett, a deacon from City Church, and I will be leading us in our scripture reading today. Our Old Testament reading is from Psalm 16. Protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the holy ones in the land, they are the noble, in whom is all my delight. Those who choose another God multiply their sorrows. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol or let your faithful one see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our gospel reading is from Matthew. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you make yourself known to us in Jesus Christ through your scriptures and in the breaking of bread. We ask this morning that you would draw near to us now, that you would attend to our lives, to our, our pain, to our hopes and dreams, to our desire to be involved in the world seeking peace and justice, to be lovers of our neighbor and agents of your righteous kingdom on this earth. And so we need your help to do that. And we ask now that you would meet us as we sit with your scriptures and grow us up to be more like Jesus, your son, through whom we pray. Amen. I learned about arrow prayers from Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author best known for her children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, but who has written a number of other works, including a devotional book for kids called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, where she talks about arrow prayers. And arrow prayers are one-liners that you shoot up to God in the middle of the action of life, when you don't have time or the mental bandwidth to do anything more the way an archer might lob an arrow hastily in the middle of battle. An arrow prayer is not carefully aimed or articulated. There's no time for that. Rather, it's a shot from the hip, so to speak, in a general direction of what's going on uh, with trust and hope that God is capable of catching what you throw his way. And so arrow prayers can sound like this, Lord, help me, or just simply, 
Jesus. God help, give me grace. Thank you, Lord. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Or one favorite arrow prayer for our family, Jesus be with Annie. Jesus be with Will. Jesus be with Cooper. Those, that's my, those are my kids' names. Uh, those are the prayers we pray as we walk by their school window in the middle of a school day, back when we had things like school days in school buildings. Arrow prayers are some of the most personal, raw, honest prayers that we bring to God. And one of the things I love most about praying the Psalms is how they provide us with a rich storehouse of ready-to-go arrow prayers for every situation in life. And this Psalm in particular, Psalm 16, provides us with quite a few one-liners that make their way into our arrow prayer arsenal. Lord, you are my portion and my cup. I shall not be moved. You will not abandon me to the grave. You show me the path of life. In you is fullness of joy. These are prayers that God has given his people to give back to him in faith. And they are prayers that we receive as an inheritance from those who've gone before us. Prayers that help us put words to our cries of faith and struggle. Prayers that shape us in the midst of the struggle of faith. The Psalms help us to pray and they teach us to pray. But they do more than that. Praying the Psalms is not merely an intellectual exercise that builds our vocabulary of faith and informs the desires of our hearts. Praying the Psalms is also a transformative practice because when we pray the Psalms, God meets us in a special way. When we pray the Psalms, we bring to God all the stuff of our present day experience, our hopes, our fears, gratitude, anguish, pleading, praise, lament, confusion, brokenness, pain, all of it using the same words that God's people have used for thousands of years, using the same words Jesus himself used in his own lived human experience. We pray the Psalms, and when we do so, the stories of our lives get caught up in this larger story of God, a story that finds its heart and soul and center in the story of Jesus himself, God in person in our world, God's anointed son who lived died, rose again from the dead, and will come again. To pull the Psalms toward our own lives and to bring our own lives to God through the words of the Psalms is to do what Jesus himself did as a man of sorrows and a man of faith. And this Jesus, whose prayers we pray, is the one we confess today is alive, praying for his people, reigning over the earth, moving the story of God's people and God's world forward toward God's promised future of justice and peace. When we pray the Psalms, we pray with Jesus and we pray his prayers as our own. We pray as fellow sufferers with Jesus, the crucified one, who knows intimately the dark night of the soul and who bore in his own body and heart the pain of betrayal, violence, and injustice. We also pray as fellow victors and heirs with Jesus, the risen one, who has defeated death, who has doused the fires of hell, who has pried free the destiny of this world from the iron grip of destruction that humanity has been so hell-bent on inflicting upon God's beloved world from the very beginning. We pray the Psalms as death and resurrection people, living in union with our death and resurrection Savior in the midst of a death and resurrection story that is both the tragedy and hope 
of the world. And this psalm, Psalm 16, it gives us this fresh supply of arrow prayers that we can pray in the heat of real-time, real-life stuff as we live out this death and resurrection existence in solidarity with Jesus and with those whom God has given us to love. This psalm is a prayer of refuge. Specifically, it's about taking refuge in God's temple, which was understood in ancient Israel to be the place of God's presence on earth. And it's about taking refuge in God himself, rather than in all the other things we may look to for security. The psalmist speaks of these things, uh, these other things that we take refuge in as other gods, deities of neighboring nations, who were believed then to grant blessings on a sort of transactional basis. You appease the God with a sacrifice and maybe they will give you a good harvest or fertility or protection from your enemies. Or perhaps lowering the bar just a little bit, maybe they just won't get cranky uh, and send calamity your way. Idolatry can feel archaic to us, something from long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away that has little or nothing to do with our own struggles of faith because we have a hard time recognizing as religious most of our own religious behavior these days. We think of religious behavior narrowly in terms of things like going to church or praying, stuff like that, rather than more broadly as applying to all the ways we make meaning of our lives and all the ways that we seek fulfillment and security in the world. We tend to think in terms of, of a sacred, secular divide these days uh, that can obscure the profoundly religious character of the way we do all the regular stuff of life, of the ways that we relate to our money or to our politics or to pleasure or our career or any of the other things to which we give our lives in order to shore up our security in the world. But the reality is that we're more like the ancients than we realize. The dynamics of idolatry are essentially the same today as they were in ancient times, even if they do manifest very, very differently today. Our struggle is essentially the same. We try to take refuge in all sorts of things that we find easier to trust than God. We turn to all sorts of things, hoping they will serve our purposes, only to find that we end up serving them and they turn out to be cruel masters. That's why we need psalms like this one, to give us words to pray that will help us name our struggle and reach toward the true and living God in the midst of it. We need the arrow prayers God gives us to give back to him. Protect me, O God, for in you, I take refuge. This is the quintessential plea of trust in God. It's a cry that says, God, you are bigger than all of this. You're good, and I trust you with my life. Help me. It's the antithesis of our anxious fretting that says, I'm all alone here, and if I can't protect myself or my loved ones, no one else will. The Lord is my portion and my cup. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is the hopeful prayer of contentment. The psalmist's contentment comes not from getting a bigger portion or from wanting less of one. His contentment comes from knowing that the Lord is the great portion. If you have him, everything else pales in comparison. This is the kind of contentment the Apostle Paul expresses in his letter to the Philippians when he says, I can be rich, I can be poor, I can do all things. Why? Because it is Christ who strengthens him. 
because it is the Lord who is his portion and his contentment. When you and I feel the world's tug on our hearts, the powerful undertow that drags our desires out to sea and makes us long for things that God has not provided for us in such a way that we struggle to live contentedly, this psalm is a life raft that brings us back to the still waters. Will you let this psalm guide you in the way of contentment? The Lord is your portion and your cup. The abundance of his kingdom and his love are yours. Will you savor it? Will you savor him? This is the way of life. I shall not be moved. This arrow prayer is one that I first learned not from the Psalms, but from the blues. I grew up on the blues and American folk music, and I first learned I shall not be moved as a kid, listening to Mississippi John Hurt's double live record, which was captured in a performance at Oberlin College in 1965. And I didn't know anything about any of that. I didn't yet know about the civil rights movement. I didn't know about the 1960s or the way that we shall not be moved became an essential anthem of that struggle. I had not yet read Maya Angelou's poem, Our Grandmothers, in which the refrain, I shall not be moved, repeatedly and relentlessly follows stanza after stanza that name the atrocities suffered by generations of black women in America. I didn't know I shall not be moved was an arrow prayer, confession of faith and hope with a profoundly painful and powerful history and simultaneously a, de a declaration of human resolve that we aren't going anywhere and a plea to God to make that true. I didn't know it was rooted in the Psalms, anchored in the promise of God to bring the people of Israel out of slavery and in Egypt and into this promised land of Canaan, a promise that had been fulfilled fulfilled but not fulfilled, a dream that had been realized and yet deferred at the same time. I shall not be moved is an arrow prayer that draws us into both the struggle of God's people and the hope of God's promise, and it's a particularly important one in this moment we're in right now of America's reckoning with our original sin of racism and this long struggle for justice among those who have suffered. For you do not give me up to Sheol, or let your faithful ones see the pit. This is the prayer of resurrection hope that looks death in the eye and calls its bluff because God is bigger even than death. This is the source of our hope, that God has promised not to abandon his people and simply go the way of the world, the natural course of death and decay. Instead, as the psalmist so beautifully remembers and celebrates here, God has promised to deliver his people from these things. And when the apostle Peter gives the inaugural sermon of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost, he quotes this very psalm, this very verse, and he proclaims to the world the significance of what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. Peter sees God's faithfulness to raise Jesus as God's coming through on this ancient promise. This is the clincher. This is how we know God is trustworthy. Jesus Christ, who was crucified for your sins, God raised him up because he would not let his Holy One see corruption. He would not abandon his beloved to the pit. And this is the promise that is true for you and for me and for our neighbors as well. For those who are in Christ, his path is your path. What God has done in Jesus, God will do for you. That is his promise and that is our hope. And that is our distinctly Christian hope. 
Not that we will avoid suffering. Not that we will somehow escape the decay and death that befalls everything and everyone in this world. But rather that God has promised to bring us through it and beyond it into everlasting life with him in the world that he is remaking. A world where sin and sorrow and death are no more and life everywhere thrives in the presence of God. And this hope, this promise of God, is what undergirds our Christian mission to live in step with Jesus as agents of love, justice, and peace in God's world, whatever the cost. As Whitney so beautifully introduced at the beginning of our service in reading for us that quote from Esau Macaulay from the New York Times, uh, Macaulay, he describes how this resurrection hope of Jesus meets us in our moment saying that resurrection hope doesn't remove the Christian from the struggle for justice. It empties the state's greatest weapon, the fear of death, of its power. And Psalm 16 gives us words to pray in the face of suffering and death and in the face of tyranny and lethal force that for centuries have girded sufferers, allies, co-conspirators alike who have overcome fear not only in the name of love and justice, but in the name of Jesus. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. This is the great crescendo of the psalm, and it is perhaps the greatest gift of all. The way of life that God makes known to us is the way of joy in God's presence. God calls us to a life of joy. Joy is perhaps the most precious jewel that adorns the Christian life, because joy cannot be crushed or contained. Because joy, unlike simple happiness, does not depend on the absence of sorrow, but only on the presence of God. Joy is infectious. It goes viral in the world in all of the best ways, beginning with our Savior himself, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and brought life to the world. This joy is God's great gift to you who entrust your lives to the Lord of life. Do you know this joy? Are you experiencing it now? Are you attuned to God's presence in your life? Do you experience your day in the presence of the God who envelops and enlivens you? The Father who loves you as his own child. The Son who died for you and lives for you and reigns today and and over the earth and over you, and then this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whose breath made the heavens and the earth, fills your lungs with life, fills your heart with love, and will even fill the dead with new life when Christ comes again. This God, the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all things, is with you, and for you, and in you, and around you, and he says to you, awaken to my presence and rejoice. This is God's great gift to you in Christ, and it is also God's great gift to the world, which he has entrusted to you, to us, to share with others. What a precious and glorious calling. What a life-giving mission. Will you entrust your life to the living God? to his protection, his provision, his promise, and his presence. And for the joy that is set before you, will you run with endurance on this path of life set before you, pioneered and perfected by Jesus? The one who calls you is faithful. He will not abandon you. And in him is the fullness of joy. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.